The scripture this morning is Philippians 2, 19 to 30. These are Paul's words addressed to the church at Philippi, giving insight about how he felt about two fellow workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive the news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. We're in a series on, uh, if you're just joining us this morning, we're in a series on the letter to the Philippians. And the last few weeks, we've moved through some territory of the dramatic and stunning Christ hymn. I just want to put a plug in. If you don't give up, if you're, if you're trying to memorize that, I know at least, I've talked to at least one person who's doing it. And so I just want to remind you, my encouragement at the beginning was to memorize that Christ hymn. You've still got a few more weeks, so put that plug in. But we did that. We, we wrestled last week with this heavy theological question of what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And now we come to a section that talks about travel logistics. Brothers and sisters, work out your salvation. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Shine like stars in the sky. And before, you, before I forget, let me give you some information about my travel plans for the next few months. This is a good reminder to us that we're not reading a theological treatise, though at times it might seem that way. We're reading a letter. We're reading a letter that was penned by a real person that involved real things like logistics and travel plans, that involved real emotions, people who were anxious, people who were ill, maybe even a little homesick. People like us who are trying to figure out how do I and my coworkers get from point A to point B. And one of those people, the person I want to focus on today, is a guy named Epaphroditus, which is quite a name, isn't it? It's a mouthful. I was thinking, I wish that there was like a shortened name, like EPAP or something, that I could 
say, because I'm going to have to say this a lot, but I'm... But Epaphroditus, we think he grew up very likely in a pagan home because it's at some point converted to the way of Jesus because of his name. Because he was named after the Greek goddess Epaphrodite. The goddess who was the personification of the human sex drive. That, That is where, of course, we get the word aphrodisiac. And as a reminder, Epaphroditus has been sent to Paul by the church in Philippi as an envoy, as a representative with financial aid and also to care for Paul. So remember, we know Paul's in prison. We're not exactly sure where in prison. I think there's a pretty good chance, if you look at the scholarship, that he's in Rome. Okay, so Epaphroditus is sent with a financial gift to provide for Paul's needs. Again, as a reminder, at that time in prison, you weren't served food. You would have relied on the support of friends and family. But he's not just there to give a gift. He's there really, the word is to minister to him, to really support him, maybe even help him out with his legal problems as he prepares for trial. So that's why Epaphroditus is there. But now Epaphroditus has been sent back by Paul to Philippi. He's got this letter that we're we're reading. And assuming that Paul is in Rome, that means by the time that Epaphroditus passes through his front door, he has traveled between, somewhere between 700 and 1,200 miles to get home. It was, the Roman road system at the time was good. A traveler uh, could probably walk at a pace of about three miles an hour. So walking seven hours a day could have covered about 20 miles a day. But even that, it would have taken him six weeks. So quite a journey. Very different, of course, as compared to how we travel today, where you can get on a jet Eat breakfast, United States, get on jet and be halfway across the world in time for supper. I've never walked 1,000 miles. I've walked 180 before across England at a similar pace. It took me a couple weeks. I can attest it was arduous. And I can attest that, that having those two weeks to travel across England gave me a lot of time to think and reflect. And Epaphroditus had a lot to think about. Because Epaphroditus has come about this close to dying. Epaphroditus, as he's walking back, is thinking, I really shouldn't even be alive. I don't know what that's like. I know there's a few people in our congregation who have come that close to dying that could probably tell you what that's like. We know, we know travel at the time was dangerous, especially at sea. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about being shipwrecked three times. One of those, it sounds like Paul was actually out at sea, floating for a day and night. So we know there was hazardous travel conditions, and we know those could weaken one's resistance to diseases. And Paul doesn't tell us exactly what Epaphroditus has made him so ill, but we know that typhoid fever and especially malaria were common at this time. And we know whatever it is that Epaphroditus, whatever he fell ill with, he almost died. More literally in Greek, Epaphroditus, uh, death was a neighbor to Epaphroditus. You know, we say death, he's at death's door. Epaphroditus was a, death was a neighbor to Epaphroditus. And see, back then, when you got that sick, usually you didn't make it. Today, if you're a relatively healthy person like Epaphroditus, must have been to make this journey. Even if you get seriously sick, if you go to the hospital, I think most of us assume that we're going to pull through. But that wasn't the case back then. One Thanksgiving, when I was serving the Peace Corps, and I lived in Benin, I made these travel plans to take my, go by bike through the bush to another Peace Corps volunteer's house to eat Thanksgiving. I wanted to be around other Americans. 
So I traveled for a couple days on bike. I actually got one place where I had to put my bike on this uh, canoe to get across a river. Uh, so it was quite a journey. And I got there, and the next day I, I started feeling terrible. I was out in the middle of nowhere, and my temperature, as I kept it, checked it, just kept going higher and higher, 101 and 102 and 103, and it just kept climbing, and I was scared. I was able to get in touch with a doctor back in the capital who worked for Peace Corps. He suspected malaria. He told me to rent a bush taxi, get the whole thing, and just have him take you right away down to the capital, down to me, and you'll be cared for. Right? I had access to a, a doctor that was trained, I think, in the West. I had modern treatments. But for many in Benin, and Abel could tell you this, depending on how much money you have, when you fall seriously ill with malaria, which is still very common, the only option you have is to go home and pray you make it. Pray by the grace of God you get better. And that was the situation for Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is dying, and he's a long ways from home. It's hard to be sick at home. It's really hard to be sick when you're a thousand miles from home. And all he and Paul could do was pray. I can imagine how challenging this situation has become. Epaphroditus has been sent to help Paul, not just to bring a financial gift, but to help and minister and serve Paul. And now all of a sudden Epaphroditus is dying. But God had mercy on him, Paul writes. And not only on him, Paul says, he had mercy on me because he spared me sorrow upon sorrow. Paul is saying, if, man, if Epaphroditus had died, I don't know what I would have done. See, this, this little travel interlude, which at first glance may not seem like it's all that important, it shows us real people with real fears and sorrows. Man, if Epaphroditus had died, I would have, died, I would have been a wreck. I would have been utterly overwhelmed with sorrow. I think there's something we as followers of Jesus today can learn from this. How Paul approaches death in the letter to the Philippians. Because if you remember earlier on in the letter, Paul is in prison reflecting on the fact that he might be executed. And he's struggling. Is it better for me to live or is it better for me to die? And he says, if I go on living, the good thing about that, it means fruitful labor. But if I die, I go and be with Christ, which is by far better. So Paul recognizes something I hope we as followers of Jesus recognize, that, that in the end, death actually brings us to a better place. We were having a meeting here last Tuesday uh, with the leadership team, and anybody invited to come hear about the process of inviting and discerning new leadership to our congregation. And, um, and as, after the short meeting, we actually started talking about death. So if you, you weren't here, you missed out, all right? And I started telling, I was telling, I learned in, in the late 1800s, this congregation had had a, 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 a split, and part of what led to it was, dis, one of it was the German-English language question, but the other thing was, there was strong disagreement about whether uh, a burial should happen before the funeral service or after the funeral service. And it led to this very frank and honest conversation by the you know, 10, 10 or so people that were here uh, about death. And I mentioned at the end, I think that would be good if we had this conversation more. And a few people there said something along the lines of, yeah, we, we can talk about death because we are Christians and we believe that, that death is the start of a more glorious life. And in that respect, death really is gain. And that's important that we remind ourselves of that as followers of Jesus. But I want you to notice what Paul says about the prospect of his brother Epaphroditus dying. He doesn't say Epaphroditus 
just about to, you know, just about died. And if he, if he did, that would have been okay because he would have been in a better place. No, Paul says, if that man had died, I'd have been a wreck. If that man had died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. So look at the way Paul approaches death. So much more nuanced than our culture does today. He professes the hope that as, a, as followers of Jesus, we have a hope in the face of death. And in the very same letter, he recognizes that the death of a, lost, of a loved one is terrible. As, as I was saying in 1 Corinthians, death is the enemy. And I say that because it's not uncommon for me in my pastoral work and understandably to hear someone who's lost a loved one struggle. And sometimes you'll, they'll say this out loud. Sometimes they'll just be obvious. They're struggling because they've lost a loved one and they think they should be happy. They think they should be happy because they keep telling themselves they're in a better place. But the reality is they are overwhelmed with grief. They are grief-stricken. But they're not sure they can say that because they should be happy because their loved one is in a better place. And I want you to see how Paul models an approach to death. Death is, as followers of Jesus, gain. We need that hope. We need that consolation in the face of death. But death of a loved one is sorrow upon sorrow. And Paul knows that. I'm sure Paul has lost many brothers and sisters by this point. And he thinks, man, if I'd have lost Epaphroditus, it just would have been that much more sorrow. I don't know if I could have handled it. You see what we're seeing here? Throughout this letter, sorrow and joy, they're not mutually exclusive in the life of a disciple. They are, usually they go together. I think sometimes we think, well, as we move away from sorrow, that's where we move to joy. And as we move from joy, we move to sorrow. But Paul said, no, they're right there together. Because if you remember the last passage, he's talking about rejoicing. These two are not mutually exclusive in the life of the disciple. I'm guessing that's exactly how Epaphroditus felt on his trek back to Philippi. Because Epaphroditus probably thought, man, I am alive. Thanks be to God that I am alive. I think Epaphroditus probably had some sorrow too. Why would Epaphroditus be sorrowful? Because Epaphroditus is walking back to Philippi. Epaphroditus isn't supposed to be in Philippi. Epaphroditus is supposed to be in Rome, taking care of Paul. That's the mission that he was entrusted with by his community of believers back in Philippi. And Epaphroditus might be asking himself, when I walk back through that door in Philippi, what are they going to think? Epaphroditus, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in Rome with Paul. When I was engaged to Christiana, who, by the way, is home with two quarantine children left, so hopefully by next week we'll all be here. When I was engaged to Christiana, she, uh, she was living in Austin, I was living in Washington, D.C., and I decided to, to surprise her by flying down to Texas and, 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 and surprising her, and I had arranged with her friends to, to take her to Chewy's restaurant, this great Tex-Mex place down in Texas, where we had had our first date, and I had my aunt who lives in Austin pick me up, and she gave me a ride to this restaurant, she dropped me off. So I get to this restaurant, and I'm kind of hanging back, and I'm scoping out the, the door to the restaurant so I can swoop in and make my big surprise, when all of a sudden a police car pulls up. And the officer gets out, and he says, what are you doing here? So he had gotten a call from some people in the restaurant that said there's this really suspicious-looking guy hanging out in the parking lot. 
And I said to him, I realize this is strange, but I'm here to surprise my fiance. Where's your car? Yeah, that's another thing. My aunt dropped me off, and, and I'm in a bad position. Right at that moment, Christiana comes down to the door with her friends, and I say to the officer, can I go surprise her? And Christiana sees me, and she says, what are you doing here? She, as she reminded me that she was very excited, but that's my memories, her seeing me and saying, what are you doing here? Well, you're supposed to be in Washington, D.C. What are you doing here? And I had to say, I will explain, but would you please go tell this police officer that you know me so I don't get arrested? Epaphroditus, what are you doing here? I mean, don't get me wrong, it's great to see you, but aren't you supposed to be in Rome with Paul taking care of him? That's what we sent you to do. And I imagine, my, is my mind imagining Epaphroditus, I imagine him going through the door, maybe it's Lydia's house, who knows, falling on the couch and being like, the letter will explain it all. It's a long story. See, Epaphroditus, as he was getting closer and closer to the home, he might have started wondering, how am I going to be received? Are they going to think I'm a failure? Are they going to think I wasn't up for the task? Are they going to think I'm a weak, I'm a quitter? You know, maybe Epaphroditus himself is struggling. Did I fail in this mission? But look at verse 25, how Paul sends him back. But I think it necessary to send you back to Epaphroditus. The first thing Paul says, hey, this was me sending back Epaphroditus. He wasn't quitting. Listen, Paul doesn't stop there. My brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier who is also your messenger. Every word Paul has, I'm sure, picked out very carefully here. This is my brother. Paul, Paul will use the language of brother and sister. Not very often will he say, this is my brother. He's a fellow soldier. This guy is a brother in arms. This guy, he, he has fought with me side by side in the fight against the adversaries of the gospel and God. And he's your messenger. This word for messenger is apostolos, which means messenger. But as you can probably understand here, it's the title of apostle. And this is a highly esteemed title that describes an elite group of authoritative persons like the Twelve. And Paul, who normally takes that title in his letter, if you remember back at the beginning of this letter, Paul doesn't take that title. He gives the honorific titles to others. For himself, he takes the title slave, slave of Christ. But now he bestows that title on Epaphroditus. And Paul says, welcome that guy with joy. When that guy gets home, Throw a party for him. This is a, this is, when I was struck when I was studying this passage, there's so many beautiful things happening in this passage. Paul is back in prison, awaiting death. Now he's lost Epaphroditus who was supposed to help him. What does Paul do? Does he grumble? No, he directs his energy to lifting up and honoring his brother Epaphroditus. And we don't just see Paul doing that. This whole passages shot through with people concerned for each other. The church in Philippi is concerned with Paul's well-being in prison. That's why they send Epaphroditus to care for him. Timothy, we're not spending time with Timothy, but we could, we could easily do that. Timothy is concerned about the church in Philippi and has the interest of Jesus Christ in mind. Epaphroditus is concerned about his brothers and sisters back home who are distressed because they heard he was ill. So Epaphroditus is distressed about their distress. Paul is concerned about Epaphroditus that he receives a hero's welcome when he gets home. This is a beautiful picture of Christian community. 
This is a beautiful picture of exactly what Paul's been exhorting the, the, the church in Philippi to do, to live lives worthy of the gospel, to live lives worthy of their citizenship in the kingdom of God. This is what that looks like. This isn't just a, a travel interlude. This is a concrete example of what it means to live out the gospel, of what it means to do nothing out of a selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to value others above yourself. Not in the abstract, but in the real life with real people. We're in a season in our congregation of discerning, calling a new leader here at Midway. I think this is a really good place for us to just stop and think and reflect as we do our own discernment and pray who may, about who God may be calling. Who in our congregation is currently genuinely showing care and looking out for the interest of the brothers and sisters here at Midway? Like who's lifting up and honoring others? Who's doing that like Paul and Epaphroditus and Timothy are doing? When you saw Epaphroditus walk through the front door, I think Paul's saying, don't be surprised if that guy's feeling a little down. Don't be surprised if that guy's struggling. Don't be surprised if that guy feels like he failed the mission. You go up to that guy, Epaphroditus, when he comes in, and you honor him, and you hang a medal around his neck, because that guy deserves it. We talked about this the, the first week. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was founded by military veterans. This would have been a place that would have been very familiar in honoring and bestowing uh, honors on patriotic heroes of Rome, of, of the Roman Empire and Caesar's army. And it's almost like Paul is kind of doing something subversive here. I think Paul is saying, in God's kingdom and army, the soldiers we lift up and honor are not those who kill, but those who risk their lives for the gospel, like Epaphroditus, who set out on an arduous and dangerous journey, who subjected himself to physical and emotional and psychological stress, and almost died a thousand miles from his home to help me and for the cause of our Lord Jesus. Lift that guy up. Put a medal around that guy's neck. The last line of this passage, verse 30. Paul says this, Epaphroditus risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. This word that Paul uses for risk is in Greek, parabolumenos. It's also a mouthful. And it's the only time in the New Testament that we see this word. And it can mean, you know, like the English translates it, risk. It can mean to throw down a stake, to make a venture. But here's what I think is really interesting. It's also a gambler's word. It also can mean to stake everything on the turn of the dice. See, in the Roman Empire, when people placed their bets, they would sometimes call out the name of a god or goddess. And a favorite goddess of the gambler was Aphrodite. Aphrodite. So what they would do is they rolled the dice, they would call out Epaphroditus, literally by Aphrodite, in hopes that the Greek goddess would bless the gambler's luck in the throw of the dice. We're doing a, I'm doing a little speculation here. It's not totally clear. But do you see what Paul might be doing here? As Paul is writing this letter, when he gets to this part and he's going to choose a word for risk and he chooses this word, he, he's, he might have a smile on his face. Because here's Epaphroditus, this guy named after a Greek goddess whose name was invoked when people rolled the dice, who in his service to Paul and Christ took a gamble. 
Epaphroditus was not gambling with money. Epaphroditus was gambling with his life. Epaphroditus had put his life on the line in a high-stakes venture of traveling a thousand miles to help Paul, and it almost killed him. Epaphroditus is a gambling man, but not for money for Jesus Christ. Later on in the early church in the third century, there came to be an association of men and women called the parabolini, same, same root of the word, the gamblers. These gamblers were called that because they voluntarily undertook the care of the sick and the burial of the dead. And they received that name because they risked their lives in exposing themselves to contagious diseases. They, like Epaphroditus, were gamblers, were risk-takers for the sake of others and the sake of Christ. What are you rolling the dice on? What risky venture are you taking on right now in the name of Christ? What are you putting on the line for the sake of others and the sake of Christ's church? Listen to me, because you've got to get this. Otherwise, you're going to try to squirm your way out of this, like maybe me. You don't have to travel a thousand miles across the Roman Empire to roll the dice. Because it's too easy to say, well, that was Epaphroditus taking a risk, and I have nothing like that in my daily life. Every day in the most mundane ways, as followers of Jesus, tasks are presented to us, opportunities are presented to us that are risky, that are scary. And we don't know how they're going to turn out. You know, I think about a conversation I had uh, with a lovely lady. Uh, it was an extracurricular activity for one of my kids, and, and we had come to a point where something I felt like contradicted my faith convictions. And I did not want to talk to this woman about that. I wanted to just ignore it and just keep the peace because I don't like making people uncomfortable. This lady was a lovely lady. And I was scared all day to have this conversation. And I finally had it with her. I, I think about what I'm scared about. I'm thinking about some, some brothers right now who I feel like God is reaching out to and I feel like are, are, are close to a more active discipleship journey with Jesus. And I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, I want to reach out to those brothers, but I'm scared. Because I'm scared that if I reach out to them, I'm going to offend them. Because if I reach out to them, I'm going to make them uncomfortable. Because if I reach out to them, they're going to say, no, I don't want to do that. If you have your eyes open by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to realize almost every day you are presented with a risk. You are presented with something that scares you. You're going to feel as you attune yourself to it, the Holy Spirit nudging you to do something, and it's going to scare you. Maybe it's in a similar way I should. Maybe, maybe your risk is the Holy Spirit is nudging you to make yourself more vulnerable to your brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's scary. But to take at, down the pretenses that we've been trained to bring to church and say, I'm going to actually be honest. I'm going to be radically honest about what I struggle with, with these brothers and sisters. That's a risk. Or maybe for you, a risk is I'm going to enter into the pain of somebody else's life. Because it's a lot easier just to stand to the side and say, I know that person's struggling. I don't want to enter into that pain. I don't want to enter into that struggle. Look at Epaphroditus. He entered into the pain and struggle of Paul. Immersing yourself in discipleship, immersing yourself in Christian community is risky business. It can feel a lot safer to be outside of this sanctuary and outside the journey of discipleship. I don't know what scares you, but I can guarantee if you are serious about following Jesus, 
you're going to find yourself on a regular basis in scary situations right here in Columbiana and Mahoning County. Scary situations are not in the Roman Empire. They are here in Mahoning County and Columbiana County, right around us. They're in our neighborhoods. They're in our places of work. They're with our friends. They're with our siblings. Because you're going to be presented with, with opportunities to take a risk for the kingdom, and that's going to scare you. And here's the sobering reality about taking risks with your faith. Even when you step out and take a risk, it doesn't always go as you hoped it would. Things did not go the way Epaphroditus had hoped they would. He took a risk, traveling to help Paul with the intent of staying there and serving him, and yet he almost dies and is sent back home on what seems to be a failed mission. He gambled, and the plans didn't turn out like he thought they would. There are going to be times as disciples of Jesus that you're going to, you're going to do it. You're going to step out and take a risk for Jesus. You're going to take a step out and take a risk for somebody else. And it is not going to go as you think it would. You're going to find yourself like Epaphroditus sitting in your house thinking, what the heck just happened? That did not go as I thought it would go. And I do not understand how God was working this situation or is working this situation. But here's what you've got to remember. When you cast your dice... You don't have some pagan goddess helping you out. You have God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, helping you out. You have a God who takes the long view and is playing the long game, whose son, Jesus, despite his own fears and sorrows, took the risk of going to the cross in obedience to the Father, whose earthly mission that Friday afternoon looked like a total failure as he died like a slave on the cross, Yet, as the hymn tells us, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at that name every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Put the ultimate medal around that guy's neck. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for the gamble that Epaphroditus took for Paul and for your kingdom the ultimate risk your son Jesus took for our sake. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes to what risk you are asking us to take for you in our daily lives. May the Holy Spirit empower us to step out in faith and take those risks. In Jesus' name we pray.